Welcome to Control the Controllables. My name is John McGahan from Max Tennis Academy in Ireland, and I'm here with my co-host, Dan Kiernan from Soto Tennis in Spain. Together we have created a podcast, bringing some of the top tennis athletes and tennis coaches from across the globe together. We hope you enjoy our next episode. Welcome to episode 60 of Control the Controllables. Today we have Anthony Harris, who coaches Lloyd Harris, top 100 ATP player. And then a little bonus for you, because halfway through the podcast, Lloyd Harris also joins us. So we have Anthony and Lloyd talking through their their journey together. Anthony coached Lloyd from the age of 14. He has his own academy in South Africa. After spending many years in Israel, where he developed a young Dudi Seller, who was also a top 50 ATP player, and, and how they've really tried to change the attitude in Africa, that we can do attitude and, and open up doors for, for many youngsters to believe that tennis is a sport that they can play to an international level. And as Lloyd has proved, last year he was one set up on the great Roger Federer on the centre court at Wimbledon. A real eye-opening moment for many in Africa. And the impact that it's had has gone far and wide. They discuss all of that. We get their insights into their opinions on player movements, the opinions on the tour, and just a really nice, fascinating chat to speak to people at that level. So hope you guys enjoy it. Uh, also, if you do enjoy listening to Anthony, he is one of the, the speakers alongside myself and, and many, many great people in the tennis world for Between the White Line Summit. We will drop the link into the podcast notes if you are interested in that. That is September the 24th to the 26th. So that's very much coming up in the next few days. Uh, If you're listening to this beyond September 2020, then obviously this part isn't relevant for you, but the podcast certainly is. So I hope you guys enjoy it. I'm going to pass you over to Anthony and Lloyd Harris. So Anthony Harris, a big, big welcome to Control the Controllables. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much for having me. No, it's, a, it's, an absolute, it's an absolute pleasure to, to speak to you. And I know that, we, that Lloyd, Lloyd Harris is going to be coming on a little bit later in the podcast as well. But just for those listening, Anthony has been working on the tour for many years, you know, well known for the work that he did with Dudi Seller. And then now the, the, the coach of Lloyd Harris. He's also got his own academy in South Africa. So there is some similarities there, Anthony. I've got my own academy in Spain, so we can, we can maybe compare some notes on academies. Uh, but to start with, you're coming from New York. How's, how's the US Open experience been? It's been really different. I mean, there hasn't been any crowd and, and each person only allowed two, two in his team. But we've been in a bubble and we felt pretty safe. And yeah, so it's, it's actually been different, but great. And, and what about, obviously, a few days ago, there's been a big hoo-ha that's certainly come out of the bubble with the positive tests and 
you know, how, how has that affected the players and the coaches? Has there been a knock-on effect with that? So, obviously, I mean, it's difficult for, I'm sure, the tournament to, to make the rules as they go along. And I'm sure that there were some people who were a little bit upset by, by the difference in the first guys who were tested positive and then the, the next batch of guys who were tested positive. But I think that everybody understands that we're dealing with a situation that nobody can control and, and we have to kind of go learn as we go along. But I felt that, that it was done pretty well and we all felt pretty safe. Yeah. Because obviously it's almost, this is not the first tennis tournament that is going to happen like this. You know, the, the, way, the way of the world, I would imagine, this is going to be going for a little while longer. So it feels as if the, these rules that have been set at the, at the US Open is now going to have to be carried on into the French Open and, and the other events. So my understanding is you guys are coming to Europe next week. And what's the plan for the next two or three weeks, month from now? So the first thing is that with the... We apparently we're following the same protocols as the US Open. So yeah. we need to do exactly the same. We have to test 48 hours before. And apparently there is a, is a bubble in, New, in Rome and there is a bubble at the French Open because yeah. we're being told that on arrival we will have to do the second test and then once you prove uh, negative, then you're given your credentials. So from that perspective, it's, it seems like it's going to be pretty similar to the U.S. Open. Yeah. Um, and in terms of our plans, we hope we're going to play Rome. And we, I don't think we'll get into Hamburg. The cuts are really, really high or low. So we might have to obviously play a challenger before the, US Open, uh, before the French Open. And then we'll play the French Open. Okay, well, well, good, good luck with that. And I, I have to ask with all of this testing, I had a, I had a test. We went through our protocols at the academy with the start of the new term, and it's not very pleasant having that thing stuck up your nose. Is that, is that what you guys have to go for every couple of days? So the test, the testing protocol, it's a little bit different. So we, when we left South Africa, we did that test where okay. they stick it way up. But the testing that we've been doing at the U.S. Open was way less invasive. Okay. And so you, it's not all the way up. It's, it's slightly different. You do both nostrils. And it's definitely not as invasive as the one all the way up. That's, well, that's good because my, my eyes were watering for about 45 minutes after, after mine. And I have to say a big shout out to Mark Jeffrey and the guys at be between the white lines who have have connected us you know we're we're both fortunate to be to be speaking at the summit at the end of september what what can you tell us about that summit and about about the movement of between the white lines i think it's incredible i think that the the concept and the fact that africa really needs support i mean there's so many people who don't believe that it can be done from Africa. So many people tell us, you need to go outside, you need to have bases outside. Um, and I think that this summit and the concept of creating a, a champion in Africa, well, we've proved that it's possible. So I absolutely believe in that the rest of Africa and the countries in Africa need to hear that it is possible. 
So I think that what Mark is doing is absolutely incredible. Oh, great. And, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to hearing you speak as well, Anthony. And it, it's obviously, it's obviously a, something that's very close to your heart. You know, can you just tell the listeners, what, what do you do? How long have you had the academy in South Africa? You know, how, how things work over there? So we opened the academy in 2012 with the absolute concept to create an African champion. So, and so since then, we've tried to show that it is possible. Um, the academy is, it's, it's growing from strength to strength. Um, we've had incredible results. I mean, if I told you eight years ago that we, in 2020, we'd have a top 100 player in ATP and we would have a top 20, top 15 ITF junior I think a lot of people would have said that's quite difficult from Africa, but we've done it. And so I hope this is going to create a lot of belief and hope for a lot of people. Well, first of all, a massive congratulations. I'm sure, you know, someone who's also heavily involved in the tennis world, it's no mean feat. And we, we know the commitment and the excellence that it takes to do that. What's, what's been your secret over the last eight years? I think the most, the secret has been, first of all, creating an environment that is real and creating a, an, a place and environment that you can fight on equal terms. I think many people in Africa always feel like they're fighting with one hand behind their back. Yeah. So we try to create a, a place that you weren't fighting with one hand behind your back. You had absolute equal opportunity. So the quality of the, of the courts, the quality of the training, the environment, the ability to, to travel and compete internationally. So we made sure that all the boxes were ticked and that it, we were fighting on an even playing field. Yeah. And I think this, is, this has been a big, big reason. And do you think having that and having those facilities and the, obviously the the excellent coaches and, and bringing on a level playing field but also still using the mindset of we're fighting from africa and almost creating a uh a, a, almost like a tribal a tribal way of working that we're we're gonna we're gonna prove that this can be done is that something that you've tapped into from the mentality point of view I think, the, yeah, definitely. The, the biggest thing is that if, if I give you an example of we, have a, we had a kid who came from a very tough environment and for this kid to believe that he can actually be a champion, that's like really tough. Yeah. So the, by putting a kid, by giving him, putting him into an environment where, he, where first of all, the quality of the facility the quality of his coaching, the quality, the, his ability to, I mean, I know this might sound crazy, but that he has shoes and clothing yeah, that yeah. are not torn to pieces, that he has rackets that are equal to what anyone else has, that if he breaks a string, he can fix the racket, no problem. Yeah. These, these are, make a huge difference. And you take the, I was just going to use this little, this kid as an example. So we sent him to Croatia to play in the world championships under 10. And 
or there's a snooker bowl tournament. I don't know if it's a world championship, but it's a great international tournament. And the, and we sent him with his dad. And the, and the minute this kid and his father went, so the whole, everybody around him wants to be like Leo. Everybody says, wow, if Leo can go and Leo can yeah. do this, why can't we? So these are really important issues. The belief issue is huge and hope. I love it. And what, what about the logistical issues? I guess the biggest one being finance. How, how have you managed to overcome that? So it, when we created the academy in the beginning, my wife and I, we financed everything for the first three years. And then I obviously I understood that without the financial resources, it's very difficult. So we managed to find a very special lady by the name of Anthula Markovitz. And we got Anthula to create a foundation that would raise funds just to make sure that these kids could get to tournaments as needed. So you can imagine a, a kid who's say 12 or 13, who's starting to play ITF. He's going to play 18 or 20 weeks in a year. Yeah. He needs to play 18 or 20 weeks. So by having the finance for him to do that, we have an absolute full chance. And Thula created the foundation. And today we have support in the foundation from families like the Kirsch family that are, create, are providing the finances and resources to make this happen and to make it real. Fantastic. What a fantastic initiative. And, and how do you then select the players? To I guess I'm looking at it a little bit as a, a British coach who's been in Spain now for 10 and a half years. If I liken it to the, the LTA system, and I know you won't have the same funds that they have. However, there then becomes a lot of in-house fighting over who are the ones that are gonna receive the funding. Is, is that something that has then come as a result of that? And how are you selecting the kids to get the support? So the first part of selection is that we, we, know, we are more interested in the type of, of kid. So you might not be the best or the most talented, but if you are, hardworking and you are respectful and you are fighting for this and you deserve it that gets you that's what the kind of people we want and the minute we were chose we started to choose kids on that basis um so the environment suddenly becomes there's no it's not a question anymore of who should get or who or who shouldn't or if i'm the best i get it's who deserves and then and i think this is important it's, it's unbelievably important. And I think there's not many people around the world that do it in that way. And, and, and it's, it's ultimately, it's about, it's about being a champion in life as well, isn't it? You know, and, and bringing, bringing those values through is, is absolutely incredible. So if I take you back, Anthony, obviously you've, you've achieved fantastic things, but you can even talking to you, I can tell that, it comes from your heart, you know, it's something that you're incredibly passionate about. Where, where did this fuel start to burn, you know, in terms of your tennis journey? What was your tennis journey growing up as a, as a player first and how it transitioned into being a coach? My 
passion and burning for, for what we're doing at the moment. When I was, I grew up in Africa. I was actually born in Zimbabwe sure. and I became, I was the number one in my country at the age of 17. I was number one in the men's and in the juniors. And I, at that age, I already felt that something was not right. Something, I don't know why, but that's, it was in my heart. So I went and I joined, there was a suburb in, in um, Zimbabwe called Mofakosi, which was just like a, a really poor high density suburb. And I used to go there and I used to coach the kids for free. And then we even started a league team. And so I was this like this guy with these five kids from Mofakosi who literally didn't have shoes. We ended up um, managing to raise some funds to help them get some courts and then to, and I, we, we actually won the league and that was the, and then I realized and this was, this was my, I felt good from this. And I, for some reason, I felt that at that point I, I didn't have the knowledge maybe to continue. And that's why I went overseas. I went to university in the United States, finished. And when I was finished with college, I decided I'm going to, I'm going to go, I go into coaching and I went and that's how I got involved in, in, um, in uh, Israel with Dudi Sela. My coach originally, actually, when I was a kid was Dick Savitt, who was an American who I think he won Wimbledon in 1951. Sure. And so then I went to, to learn. Um, I was very lucky to work for a, a Dutch coach by the name of Hans Felius, who had, who was working with WTA and ATP players. And so I went straight into professional coaching and I followed that journey, focusing only on working with professionals. And then when I felt I was ready, I realized it's time now to go home and take all this knowledge and to continue what I started at the age of 17, 18. Fantastic. And how, how many years did you work with duty for? So duty was, it was from, I was from about 1994, 93 until around 2002, 2003, something mm -hmm. like this. And actually in, in, in around 2000, there was an, uh, an American organization called the ITC. They had 14 tennis centers, like 200 tennis courts. And they asked me to come for an interview to be the program director, which I wasn't really interested to do because I love being on the court. I did get the job. And so I, I had a five-year contract to manage, to be the program director of this massive organization. And there I learned a lot more about tennis, about the development of tennis, about not just dealing with professional tennis. Yeah. And, and, and so how old was Duty when you worked with him? So Duty was 11 or 10 when we oh, found him. Wow, okay. Yeah, I found him. He was from this little town called Kiryat Shmone and we started bringing him twice a week. And then we moved his whole family to the tennis center where I, the main tennis center. And that was the beginning of the process with him. And until he, I think he was number one ETA and he reached like top 10 ITF. And, and then he went on to be top 100 for quite a few years. Yeah, and for those listening, Duty Seller was as high as 29 in the world, you know, and to, and to be part of a <clears throat> development of, of a player like that, 
can you can you give the listeners we have a lot of coaches that listen what are the important parts of developing a world-class player from age 11 through to 19 or 20 i think you have to be you have to have a clearly defined uh, um plan let's to start with and you have to clearly understand that if we're looking at the the technical tactical physical competitive psychological development you have to understand the percentage of time spent within each area so for example if i'm if i'm 11 years old obviously i'm going to spend more time my focus will be on his technical development and his physical development once he's getting to 16 17 18 obviously the competitive and tactical development that those percentages change so I think it's very important to understand the percentage time spent in developing the various areas and making sure that each one of those are developed at the, the right times. An example, so if I, you should have his technique developed by the age of 12, 13, as opposed to focusing on him winning and competing at the age of 10, 11. Yeah, no, I like it. And and in terms of, in terms of duty, where I think it's fascinating, he's such a small man and such a big man's sport. So so in terms of, in, there's quite a lot of people that just switch off and say, no, nope, too small, not going to make it in 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 the sport. How was that challenge to get his game, to be able to to last and and, and ultimately win, compete, and have a successful career in the men's game? I think that things have changed a bit. I think that in those times, those weren't as huge factors as they are today. Okay. I think in those times, there was a, a, a different range and type of tennis players. If I look at the comparison to today, where I see that your average guy is six foot two and super athletic. So I think that those factors didn't play such a huge role. It was in those times, it was again about making sure that he had the resources, that he went to the tournaments he was supposed to, that he got the coaching and exposure he was supposed to. So I feel that the, the concept of size has changed in the last few years. And how do you think the game has changed because of that? I think the game has become a lot more physical, a lot more powerful. So I feel that. Today, if maybe you're not so, so big, it's going to be difficult to, to hurt someone. I mean, yes, I know Schwartzman is incredible and I think he's a little bit of an exception. Yeah. But I think that if you, if you can't win three points with your serve or, or you don't have a, a huge shot, uh, a weapon, um, it's going to be very difficult in today's game. Yeah, no, I was watching. I don't know if you watched the match, but um, Dan Evans is a, is a good friend, and I was watching the Dan Evans against Mute match the last the last two days, and it was incredibly unusual to see though that style of tennis being played by by two players, you know. And certainly, I watch a lot of Dan's matches, and coming he came up against someone who, you know, maybe Dan had to use, and I would imagine maybe Duty was quite similar but has, had to use, use his slice as a weapon. 
you know, taking the ball early and taking the opponent's time away. And also, I believe his competitive skills, his ability to compete well in, in, in the right moments. And it just felt like Mute maybe took all of those all of those weapons or potential weapons away by by being able to handle it. It's it, and it was just fascinating for me to see the, the, these different game styles. And I just wondered, do you, do you think that we're going to start seeing some different game styles or do you think it'll be going down the power route for a while yet? I think, I personally think we're going to see, we're going to go down the power route. But I do think that you will, I mean, if I think of, Dan can serve unbelievably. If I think about how Dan serves, compared to a guy like Lloyd, for example, Dan serves really well. But Dan brings a lot of variety and and some special skills as well. So, but I think that's going to be more exceptional. And I think that in general, we're going to see larger super athletes, guys who are I can imagine a, a, a six foot six basketball player who's a super athlete. Yeah. I can, ima- can imagine him playing tennis in the future. Yeah, no, no, absolutely. And if we, we start talking a little bit about Lloyd, how, how old was Lloyd when you started working with him? So Lloyd was around 14, 15 when he joined us. Yeah. So he's been with us about nine years or so um yeah and what an what an incredible so again for those listening that's lloyd harris i had to check it out just to see that you two weren't related <laughs> you know with anthony harris lloyd harris I, I had it in my head that maybe there was a relation there but lloyd is has been as high as 72 in the world currently 95 in the world and You've taken him again from 14 into into the top 100 in the world. How how how's that journey been? And I guess one thing I'd like to then ask you about is that journey almost from a 14 year old to centre court playing Roger Federer last year. You know how's the journey been, and how did that feel to see one of your boys come through like that? It's been a, a long journey, an exciting journey, but. With Lloyd, Lloyd is a special kid. He he was he's he has been committed to the process. He's someone who's I find him a little bit different in terms of his mentality. So it's been really fun actually with him. And he's hardworking. So and I'm I'm not really a babysitter. So I expect it to come from the kids. And Lloyd is someone that a lot comes from him. Yeah. And did that, is that something that you saw him at age 14? When I saw Lloyd at 14, I saw this kid who was, had incredible skill and, yeah. and was an incredible athlete. And I realized that it was that skill and that ability, put him into the right environment and give him equal opportunity to anybody around the world, we should have a very good chance. Oh, no, very good. And how, and how was that moment for you when he went a set up against Roger Federer at Wimbledon last year? Oh, it was incredible. I mean, just to see him on that centre court at Wimbledon, I, I was so happy for him. He so deserved it. I mean, he had worked so hard for this. 
Yeah. But yeah, no, a, a massive well done, obviously, to you guys and being able to... Roger Federer is, is so much in our sport and, and to play him at the home of tennis, Wimbledon, centre court, it's so symbolic. And, and, and obviously, Lloyd's got a lot more that, for him to achieve in his career and he's very early in his career. But have you seen... Have you seen that moment have an impact on tennis in, in Africa and certainly close to home in, in your academy? Definitely. I mean, the fact that Lloyd was on centre court and the fact that he played Roger Federer, just again, for all the kids in the academy and, for, and I think for all the kids in South Africa, just again, to see that this is someone who grew up in Cape Town, in South Africa, was developed in South Africa, it just gives everybody the belief that we can also do this because we, they've been always told that you can't do it in Africa yeah. and you need to go out. But Lloyd did it. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. It, it takes the ceiling away, doesn't it? I think, you know, even, even to, agree, to a degree, I think that's happened in British tennis over the years where there's been a bit of a ceiling set that, you know, maybe players can get wild cards into Wimbledon. But Andy Murray coming through, you start to see, then you start to get Kyle Edmonds, and then you start to get a couple of the girls, Heather Watson, Joe Conta. It just opens those those ceilings as well for what people believe is achievable. And obviously that is such a massive part of, of tennis in Africa. It's incredible. I have to mention, Anthony, Emily Webley-Smith, who's been on the podcast, who is a massive, massive advocate of yourself, of the academy, you know, you obviously do an incredible job. I've, I've heard a lot about you through her. You know, she's, she's one of your best marketing campaigns out there and, and always talks about if she could have one coach working with her, it would, be, it would be yourself. But she did also, I did pick up that, that you called her 007. And we want to know what's behind the 007 name. It's, it's just a nickname that the kids came up with that, Emily traveled with the kids in the academy and spent time with us and, and the kids really loved her. And so, and everybody's got some kind of nickname or, and maybe because she's English and James Bond, I don't know. So we just started to call her 007. Well, it's, it, it's stuck with her. It's stuck with her. And I know you've had a, you've had a big impact on her and, I, and I'm sure on lots and lots of people. Before, before we bring Lloyd in, I just have one more question for you, Anthony, and then I'd, I'd love to bring Lloyd in and just have a, have a couple of, a, a quick five-minute chat with Lloyd before we go into our quick fire round, which is tradition at the, on the podcast. If you had one bit of advice, I guess, to give young coaches, you know, you've been on this journey it's from the outside looking in, fantastic journey of, of working on the tour, but then also using your, your, your tennis to greater good of, of spreading the word in Africa and, you know, a greater purpose. What would, what would your advice be to these younger coaches? My advice would be that the most important thing, it's not so much what you know, be just accept that, we need to just learn every day and that the more, the, the, more we, the more we open to learn, the better. But the most important thing is the environment. And if the environment is healthy and happy, it doesn't really matter how good the systems are that you put in there. So I don't need to have the most knowledge 
but if my environment is healthy and I'm open to learn, I can do it. I absolutely love it, Anthea, and it's very, it's very much aligned with with our philosophies and the way that we think at Soto Tennis Academy in Spain. We need to set something up, you know, bring a team out to you guys, and you know, you guys come and spend some time with us as well. I'd I'd love to create a connection. Uh, but but thank you so much for your time. I want to keep you there because I do want you as part of the quickfire as well. But is if Lloyd's there, it'd be fantastic to have a few words as well. Lloyd, thanks a lot for joining us as well. It's great to have you on Control the Controllables. How, how's things with you? Well, uh, thank you. Um, it's, it's my pleasure to be here and I'm excited. Um, yeah, I'm doing well, you know. It's been a interesting and good couple of weeks here in the States um, but uh, yeah just happy to be playing and competing again and uh, you know excited to be heading on to the clay season next. No absolutely and and I guess for, for those for those listening Lloyd isn't Anthony's brother there's no relation uh, the the two Harrises but he, he is the current 95 in the world ATP has been as high as 72 ATP and I think Lloyd probably my first thing is obviously you've been in New York for a couple of weeks were you able to compete before you went out for Cincinnati or or was it a case of no competition since since lockdown happened yeah I mean I had absolutely no competition before I was I was in South Africa for the for the entire time and uh, you know was just practicing and you know managing with what I had over there um, and kind of they also we were only allowed to come into the bubble only a couple of days before yeah. um, the Cincinnati tournament so I had just a few days of practice and just you know got in as many practice sets as possible um, in the three four days that we had and uh, you know then I had to be ready because I was also competing in the qualifying of Cincinnati so it was a quick turnaround um, since I came to the States luckily I was able to find my game pretty fast and uh, I was able to get through the qualifying over there but um, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't have any competition for that entire, like, almost six months, I would say. Yeah, it's a long time. And I, did, did you feel as if some players maybe had an advantage over others? Did, it, did you know, their federations or, or their countries had put on events? I mean, absolutely. I feel like a lot of the guys in Europe and in America, they had some exhibition yeah. matches, some exhibition tournaments. Um, I mean, I can't speak for all of the guys because obviously there was a lot of guys that was in the same boat as me. But um, I definitely feel like they, I mean, having, if you would have been in Europe or America, you would have had opportunities to play and compete and, you know, just to um, even arrange to, to play some more practice matches with some top players, which I wasn't able to do. But, you know, it's, you know it didn't phase me really. It didn't bother me. I just... I knew what I had to prepare and how well I had to be ready uh, when I came here. And, you know, I worked on the stuff that I needed to work on and, and that's what I did. Yeah, it's an absolute right attitude as well. So it's, listen, any of our juniors at the academy listening, listen, listen to the man. He's, he's talking a lot of sense, that's for sure. I have to ask you, obviously, there's been big news about the, the PTPA um, that's, that's been kind of coming out of the bubble and coming onto our screens. You know what's what's been your take on that? Um, look, it's a it's an initiative that's been taken by a lot of the players on the tour. Um, I know it's it's kind of there's mixed opinions on it, definitely. Um, with the the ATP seeing it as almost as a 
the PTPA going against the ATP Association. I don't think that's at all what they're trying to do or achieve. Um, I think the only reason they're doing is they just want the players to unite, to have a voice and speak together um, to the ATP and you know have a bigger say uh, in some of the decisions that they do make. I feel like they're not trying to go out there and create a separate tour. This has been some of the rumors that's been going around. It's literally just um, to unite the players and have a voice and have the same opinion about certain matters in our sport and and try and and I mean I, everybody's players on tour. Everybody wants this has the same objective. Everybody wants to have a good career, um, earn a fair amount of money, um, have the have good advantages, benefits um, throughout the career. And I feel like that's the only thing they're really trying to achieve and I don't think they're going against um, any of the anything in the current situation um, so um, yeah but I understand that there's 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 a, a side from you know there's two sides to the story and that's kind of just yeah I've been pretty open to to both sides to be honest yeah and in, and in terms in terms of that Lloyd obviously yeah. in the game of tennis you're you're currently 95 in the world I know I know You've you've played the futures, you know. You've you've paid your dues. You've be, you've played the played the different levels within the top hundred in the world of players. What is the genuine and general feeling of of how far down players in the world should be making a living from the sport? Um, I mean, I feel like there's so many good players right now. As we'd all love to say, listen top 500 players in the world should be making money, but that's not realistic. Um, So I feel like it's also got to be, you know, built up gradually um, instead of just immediate with immediate effect. I think it's something that's going to take a lot of time. Um, But I feel like, yeah, right now it's just, it's just difficult for that guy, even 120 in the world to really, if you're not in playing in Grand Slam main draws, it's obviously difficult to, if you're having a coach with you week in, week out, your expenses are tremendous. So uh, I feel like there's only about 120 guys that's making, okay, like pretty good money. And then outside of that, it's, it's maybe the case of breaking even or, you know, having a season like that. Um, and I do yeah. feel like a lot of, I mean, I would say the tour fields there should be definitely a lot more players. I mean, I feel like all players, even playing in the qualifying of Grand Slams, this is an extremely high level Absolutely. Um, of tennis. So I feel like all of those guys competing day in, day out, playing in top 200, top 250 level, competing in Grand Slams, playing in qualifying and ATP events. Uh, this this is all guys that should be earning money, not yeah. not just breaking even throughout a year. No, no, absolutely, and it's almost like th- there's an elitist feeling to to the sport. You know, we've all it's our life. We're all very passionate about it. But I guess even for those that aren't fully involved in tennis, they'll look at Roger Federer, Serena Williams. Naomi Osaka, they'll see the headline news that these two, Roger Federer and Naomi Osaka, make the most money out of any sports people in the world from endorsements and not quite get the understanding. And that brings me on to my next question, similar with some of the commentators. And I remember last year, John McEnroe calling you, Lloyd Harris, age 22, a journeyman in the sport. Which what did you did you hear about that and what did you think about that? 
Uh, to be honest, I think John Macron just about calls everybody a, a journeyman. Um, anyone you know, he hasn't seen around. So I, I don't know. He's not. I, I don't know if he's that current on the tours to be going around calling everybody a journeyman. Um, but you know, uh, I don't get upset or phased by that. I just it's kind of it was kind of, it's kind of funny for me. You know, I feel like I'm yeah. still young and just coming up. And uh, yeah, maybe if I've been playing on the tour for 20 years, that would be a a fair comment to make, but you know, I just kind of take it in my stride. I, I'm not too phased about anything like that. Um, I think as a professional, there's a lot of things said about you that you know goes in one ear and leaves the other side. So uh, I'm not too too worried about that. <laughs> no, absolutely. But I guess my my point, and you know, it's a little bit tongue in cheek, and I know you as a as an ultimate professional aren't going to get phased by it. But it just it kind of showcases that same point of this elitism of, you know, these guys at the very top or, or, or fellow pros, that former pros that used to be at the top, that they aren't giving the credit that someone like you, as high as 70 in the world, deserve, you know? And I, and I think that's that, for me, is one of the biggest problems. And that's one of my concerns without knowing any of the ins and outs of the PTPA, the fact that it is a Novak Djokovic who is the world number one. You know, how much is he doing it to be looking after the guys at 20, 2.20 in the world and the girls at 2.50 in the world, or how much is it looking at the top of the game? And I guess that's kind of the cynical side of it, which we'll find out in due course, I guess. Yeah, no, I agree, absolutely. I mean, uh, I feel like uh, if a guy that's number one in the world is taking that initiative, it's, he's, not, he's, he's not in need of creating a better career for himself. He's been on the tour for how many years? He's going to be around for maybe a few more. He's trying to look after the next generation and the next generation. I feel like that, I mean, I can't see how it would benefit him in any other way. It's, he's literally just taking that initiative to care about his fellow players and, and trying to make a better career for them in the future, I would say. And in terms of you breaking into top 100 in the world and you also having time at futures level. I, I know that because you actually, you played one of my players not that long ago. I, I coach a player called Evan Hoyt, who I believe you beat in maybe the quarterfinals in Egypt two or three years ago. What, what is the difference? And, and what, why do some people make it through that level? And why do some people not? For you, as someone who has made it through, what do you see as the big difference? Yeah, I mean, look, for me, the Futures is a very challenging um, place to be because I feel like there's just, you need to win so many matches just to get through, just to get your ranking up high enough, just to have a chance in the Challenger system. I mean, I went, I played a year where I won six Futures and I barely got to 250. And I mean, that's besides all my other results I did. I mean, now now I'm finally looking, I mean, at that time, then, then I was finally looking at getting into some challenger tournaments. Um, so you just got to win a ton of matches and, and you know, to go week in and week out and just producing um, a good tennis at that level is not always that simple. I think you need to be super focused because I feel like there's a lot of distractions um, in the futures level. Um, there's a lot of things that can sideline you and, and take your mind off of your tennis. Um, I feel like it's also not everybody is arriving there with the with the coach or with a team, um, so it's sometimes it's just you by yourself and you having to grind through those tournaments, and it's it's not it's not a very easy level to compete at. It's not luxurious. It's not 
it's a little bit of a grind and um, I feel like I dealt with that situation very well. I do, I really actually enjoyed playing on the circuit and I, I remember when I just started playing there, I told Anthony like, listen, I just absolutely love this way more than playing in juniors. I just felt like, okay, now I'm playing a men's game, I'm playing to earn some money and I was, you know, excited and I, I think that's why I did so well because I was super um, almost pumped to just get through this level and, and all, all of a sudden get on to that next uh, stage. Yeah, what a fantastic mindset. And I think right there, that bit of advice that you've just given for players, how you approach it, how you reframe your, your journey is massive. You know, rather than looking at the futures as a grind and I'm never going to get through, you know, looking at it as being excited to play, excited to compete. And it's no surprise that you've made it through. So my last question now leading into you, you're still a young man, 23 years old. What are your big goals and ambitions for your career? Well, I feel like I'm still at the very start of my career. I mean, I, I, I think I've just been playing on the ATP tour like just over a year now because, of I mean, the pandemic took, unfortunately, a little bit of that time away. But I feel like I'm just starting out. I'm just starting to compete on this higher level. And, you know, I just I'm just dying to get more matches against the top, top guys. You know, I want to be competing against the top 10, 20 guys week in, week out. And, you know starting to improve my game and, and to become one of those players, you know, uh, a competitor in the Grand Slams. I, I still want to go on to, to definitely win a lot of big ATP titles, win Grand Slams and become the best player that I can be. I mean, I feel like, um, like I said, it's just, this is just the very start for me. I, I have so many years to go and so much to still improve. And, you know, I just through hard work and just to stay motivated and all that, uh, I think I can reach a lot of a lot of goals that I've set for myself in, in the future. Well, Lloyd, uh, we wish you the very best of luck. It has been an absolute pleasure speaking to you. What a delightful young man you are. You know, the, everything that you've said has completely resonated with me. And I'm sure that for parents, players, coaches listening at will do as well. I really appreciate your time. If Anthony's with you now, I'd love to take you guys through, through our quick fire round. Are you boys up for it? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, so, so Lloyd, first question, you give the answer first, and then Anthony. And then second question, Anthony, then Lloyd, just so the listeners know who's speaking. Okay. First question, ATP Cup or Davis Cup? ATP Cup. ATP Cup. Serve or return? Uh, serve. Absolutely serve. Your favourite Grand Slam? Australian Open. French. Should players be allowed an injury timeout or not? Yes. Yes. Roger or Rafa? Uh, Roger. Roger. Oh, big Federer fans. This next one. Should players be allowed the five-minute warm-up on the court before they play or not? Yes. Yes, they should, although it's been changed to four minutes. It's four minutes now, isn't it? That's right. You guys are such players and coaches on the tour. Anyone we've spoken to that's not a player or coach has said, get rid of it. 
get rid of it. The fans don't like it, but you guys are thinking of the logistics, which I understand. And my last one, and Lloyd, I want you to go first. One rule change that you would make in tennis. This is this is not a good fire question. <laughs> <laughs> Novak Djokovic, Rafael Nadal, and Roger Federer are not allowed to play Grand Slams anymore. <laughs> it could be. Yeah, that would be and, and if you're over anything over six foot uh, six foot six, only gets one serve. That would be my favourite. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll do it. And what about you, Anthony? Maybe no advantage. Oh, the the college tennis college tennis route, huh? No, just to make it maybe a little bit more exciting and more, and also maybe that way we'd be able to have the timing with sponsors and television might help a lot. Absolutely. I'd love it. So we love sudden death points. Both of you, thank you so much for your time. It's, it's much appreciated. You now have more, more fans and supporters with everybody at Soto Tennis in Spain. You guys are always welcome if you ever want somewhere to get ready for the clay courts. Good luck, stay in touch, and thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks for having us. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Thanks so much for having us. A big thank you to Anthony and to Lloyd for their time. Uh, what lovely guys, what lovely guys. Um, I haven't been fortunate enough to meet either of them, but I hope I hope that I do down the tennis line. Uh, what, what a fantastic sport tennis is. So many amazing people that we, we meet around the world. And again, I thank you all for encouraging, supporting this podcast, because I have to say, hand on heart, I've absolutely loved it. This is episode 60 over the last only four or five months. And yeah, the, the personal learning that I've taken from it, uh, the personal network that's growing and the people that I've got to, to speak to and just learn so much from really means the world to me. And, I, and I've, I've loved doing it. So a big, big thank you to you all. Uh, keep, the, keep the comments coming. Constructive is also welcomed. I know that we've had one or two comments about the the noise trying to get the the volume to be a little bit better so we have bought a microphone and we'll be trialing that out in the next couple of podcasts um so hopefully you'll see a little bit of volume quality increase um anything else that you have for us any guests that you want and please remember if you can just spending a minute liking, reviewing and sharing makes a world of difference to getting these podcasts. They're done for free. There's nothing in them other than just providing providing these fantastic guests and education, entertainment and hopefully energy for all of you. So that's just my little ask for payment for, for, for the podcasts. A big thank you to you all. I'm Dan Kiernan, my co-host John McGann, we are Control the Controllables. <laughs>